0: Stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, weekdays twelve thirty to three
1: seven seventy CHQR. The inflation challenge uh, that the world is facing right now is a global challenge linked to obviously this pandemic and the path out of it, but also linked to significant disruptions in supply chains around the world.
2: Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome aboard. Rob Regenridge with the afternoons on 770 CHQR. That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau today commenting on the situation with inflation. Uh, it is a problem that is not going away. Uh, the December rate uh, came in at four point eight percent. That's the highest it's been since December of 1991. So now at a 30 year high for inflation and inflation is, yes, as, as the prime minister says, a global problem. I mean, it usually is. That said, the problem does vary from country to country, uh, and it is certainly uh, an issue here in Canada. Uh, Prices are up substantially for gasoline, housing, vehicles, food. Question is, what are we going to do about it? So joining us to talk a bit more off the top of this afternoon about what's keeping inflation so high and and what are the options when it comes to trying to rein that in. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Trevor Toome. Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Calgary, Research Fellow at the School of Public Policy. Trevor, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Uh, so has anything changed? We've been talking about inflation for a few months, and I, I suppose the culprits are, are probably much the same, but maybe this feels like it's it's dragging on longer than, than perhaps some have anticipated. Has anything significant changed?
0: Well, we have seen inflation now kind of gradually and consistently increasing month after month through the latter half of, of last year. But the underlying drivers of that have actually remained pretty consistent. And you mentioned one of those factors at the top, and that's gasoline. So um, world oil prices are high. That's leading to higher prices uh, at the pumps, both here and in countries around the world. And that's by far the biggest contributor to this increase in inflation. But the second one uh, that's not broadly recognized is... So it's called homeowner's replacement cost. This is kind of StatsCan's way of estimating how much it costs us to maintain our homes as they kind of gradually wear out from one year to the next. And high home prices are driving what they measure that to be. And those two factors alone, that's basically the whole ballgame.
2: It is, and I suppose, you know, we can we can look at the picture and say, well, if we take this out or we take that out, the inflation rate would be lower. I mean, it is what it is. We we don't get to pick and choose, but it, it right. does help right. us understand what's what's going on here, doesn't it? Yeah, a- absolutely, and I'm not suggesting we uh,
0: shouldn't care about that overall average change in prices, certainly, and, uh, and that's going to hit different people in different ways. So if one commutes a lot, then this increase in gasoline matters a lot more than someone who, say, takes transit or walks to work. And so everyone experienced it also in in different ways. But these decompositions do matter because they um, do reveal what the underlying drivers are and might shed light on what some of the policy options are. And I think in, in terms of, like, Canadian policy, high gas prices, high home prices, there's very little, actually, that the federal government... I can do about those things, I think. Zoning in Toronto and Vancouver are bigger drivers of home prices there than uh, than federal policy is.
2: Well, we've got the one obvious solution, and and that's for the Bank of Canada to raise interest rates. Mm, And and maybe we're getting closer to an interest rate hike at some point soon here from the Bank of Canada. But does an interest rate hike hike necessarily affect those those two areas that you just mentioned, uh, commodity prices in particular for oil and and the situation with housing? Well, I think interest rates are an important factor behind some of the global
0: increases in housing prices that we're seeing. It does make borrowing money, lower costs to an individual. It allows for mortgages to um, be larger, like you may be qualifying for something that's larger with lower interest rates. and So that's, Mm -hmm. that's a factor. And then gasoline, there is an indirect way that interest rates might matter there. It would, at the margin, make the Canadian dollar rise. And that would affect the Canadian dollar equivalent price of, of gasoline. So there might be a dampening effect there. But we really shouldn't overstate the Bank of Canada's ability to to influence inflation um, in general in the short term, right? Monetary policy takes time to work its way through the system. And I think by the end of this year, you know, if house prices don't keep on rising and gasoline doesn't continue to increase at its uh, recent pace, then most inflation perhaps gradually get back down to normal.
2: Now, the, the Bank of Canada's inflation mandate was was adjusted a little bit just recently. I mean, there there is still that objective of keeping it between 1% and 3%. And I think mm-hmm. there are some people maybe who look at what's going on. Like, we've been well over 3% for a while. The Bank of Canada is sitting on its hands. What What is it waiting for? But it's more complex than that, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and I do feel for the challenge that central bankers here and abroad have. You wouldn't want monetary policy to respond to factors driving inflation that the bank of canada has very little control over i mean it doesn't matter um, directly what we do here in monetary policy terms for global oil prices and it only matters at the margin housing uh, prices so the bank instead of looking at just the headline rate of inflation that um, Uh, most of us do, they have other measures to try and get a sense of broad price pressure across the economy. And right now, depending on what measure you look at, you get very different stories. So they they look at three measures, and one of them is smack dab in the middle of their one to three percent range. So it's these kind of outlier products like gasoline Home prices that are really pulling up the average and maybe distorting um, our our overall picture of what inflation is and what's actually happening
2: what about where monetary policy meets fiscal policy and we've heard the adage a few times in in recent months you know that there's there's too many dollars t- chasing too few goods. The government doesn't control uh, supply chains, but obviously they, they do control spending. There There is a mm-hmm. lot of money that, that is, has gone into the economy through various government spending initiatives. To what extent is is that fueling inflation?
0: Yeah, so that, that also might matter, again, indirectly, because the big way in which federal spending has manifested itself is in these cash transfers to individuals through things like CERB and the various other um individually targeted benefits, and then the wage subsidy as well. So this has largely been just transferring cash from governments to individuals and businesses. And, and many of those individuals have spent that money. And so the uh, retail sales, for example, the amount of goods that we're actually purchasing is higher, far higher than prior to the pandemic. And so that might be a factor behind some of the supply chain challenges. We're just buying a lot of stuff and have really shifted away from Services And our ability to undertake that high level of, of spending is supported through those emergency federal measures, but it's not as though the government itself is buying a lot of stuff. It's really um, providing cash to people, and that's uh, the source of the increased demand.
2: Well, and obviously supply and demand. I mean, this all goes hand in hand. So you, you do wonder if, if on, on the one hand, there's a perception issue here, if people are, are worried about inflation, are they more careful in how they spend? So are people going to rein in spending on their own? Is part of an interest rate hike perhaps meant to you know, tampen, uh, tamper demand a little bit here? Where are we trying to get people to spend less? Is that part of this? Well, I'm not sure
0: that that is part of it. I mean, getting people to spend uh, less is certainly one way in which you could approach managing the the overall economy. That would come with trade-offs, right? You'd be making people sure. poor and their, their uh, living standards um, w- worse. But, yeah, uh, if the Bank of Canada next week maybe even raises interest rates, then that will lead some, at least at the, at the margin, certainly, to spend less on uh, durable goods or homes, things that they would have otherwise have needed to borrow money for. But to your point about perception of inflation, that's really important. I think there's two big issues to remember, that different people buying different things makes their their own household rate of inflation, if you will, sometimes very different than the overall average. And, you know, this is going to vary systematically across individuals. Lower-income households, for example, spend about one-third of their overall budget on shelter. So things that affect the cost of housing, that are a lot more for, uh, for that group. And then those who commute, they're exposed to gasoline uh, a lot more. And then we also just notice the prices of certain goods more than others. Gasoline, again, is something that many of us buy quite frequently. And so price changes there in our mind will carry a lot more weight than uh, it actually does account for our budget, for example. <sighs>
2: It'll be interesting to see what the Bank of Canada decides to do. Maybe we'll find out in the next week or two here, but uh, we'll leave there for now. Trevor Toom, appreciate the insight as always. Thanks for joining us. Here. You bet. Thank you. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, economist Trevor Toom, associate professor of economics at the University of Calgary, research uh, fellow with the School of Public Policy. It's kind of an overview of uh, you know what's driving inflation, where we're seeing higher uh, price increases, and, and it does vary, obviously, as, as you look throughout the economy. That said, it all adds up to this one big basket number, the Consumer Price Index, the cost of everything, up 4.8% in December, highest since December of 1991, so 30 years. So we'll play a little bit more of what the prime minister had to say about it today. We'll also let you hear what uh, conservative finance critic Pierre have had to say today. Certainly the conservatives are, are keying in on this and pointing to liberal spending as part of the problem. Uh, Just as a footnote to all of that, by the way, the uh, parliamentary budget officer is out with a new report questioning whether the federal government still needs to spend tens of billion of dollars in planned stimulus. Uh, Eve Giroux says the federal guardrails designed to guide spending decision appear to have been met, suggesting that any stimulus should be wound down before the fiscal year ends in March. Says the rationale for the planned stimulus of up to one hundred billion dollars. No longer exists. You know, just recently, as we were coming out of this uh, nasty cold snap, uh, the city in Calgary Transit uh, announced that uh, they were going uh, to close C train stations to access at 10 o'clock at night because of the concern that uh, people were spending the night there. Those who were homeless. And the thinking was that let's try to get more people into homeless shelters. Uh, C train station is not a, a safe place to be spending the night. And it certainly you know, brought up that conversation again around, well, should we be doing more? Should we be doing something differently to try to address homelessness in our city? Maybe part of the problem, though, is we look at it through that narrow lens. We think of homelessness as those who are on the street, those who are, are spending the night in an emergency shelter. But there's more to it than that. There's a really interesting a new report out from the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary uh, looking at you know how we quantify homelessness, the many shades of homelessness, as they put it. So to try to better understand what homelessness is, and I guess then that can help shape our response to it. Joining us uh, to talk more about all of this uh, is the author of this report, uh, Ron Niebone joins us uh, on the line here this afternoon, Director of Economic and Social Policy Research at the School of Public Policy, Policyschool.ca. Uh, Professor Niebone, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: Uh, it's interesting because you know part of this this research relies on the the data that exists, the the count we do of, of homelessness, and you know for example, we got an estimated fourteen hundred people uh, staying in emergency shelters on an average night in Calgary. But to what extent does that represent homelessness in our city?
1: Well, it really doesn't, and um, it's really an interesting issue trying to get a handle on just how big the problem of homelessness actually is. Uh, in the report we talked about we report some numbers from the latest what's called a point in time count in in that was done in seven cities in alberta in 2018 and basically you're trying to get an idea of the number of people experiencing homelessness it's not a great measure for reasons i'll talk about in a second but basically it says okay some of them are easy to count these are people found in emergency shelters <clears throat> and they're easy to count because the shelters count them every night and they right. report to the government so they can get reimbursed for the costs. But then you also have people who are unsheltered, and these will be people you might see them sometimes on the street. And they're counted, when you go out in a point in time count, you go late at night after the shelters are closed and see who it is that's actually sleeping on the street. And that's difficult to uncover everybody, but you no, know, we we have a guess. Uh, in the report we said there were about 44 at night with that kind of homelessness. But then there are also other people. So those first two classified people, the people in the emergency shelters and people living on the street, that's what most people think of. But they're neglecting people who are what we call provisionally accommodated. So these will sometimes be people in uh, jail, remand center, hospitals, who, when they're discharged, have no place to go. And so they are destined for homeless shelter or to sleep on the street. And so if you count, and it also includes people who are sleeping on somebody's couch, they're relying on some friend to give them some shelter short-term. These people tend to be uh, eventually ending up on the street or in shelters. And if you count them, there are about, in Calgary, roughly about another 1,500 people a night sleeping like that. So we're barely scraping the, uh, uh, we're barely counting people when we just talk about the emergency shelter. There are far more people than that. But even then, we haven't counted everyone. Because as we've reported in the past, there are about three to 400 people each month in Calgary, who enter a shelter system enter the shelter system for the first time in their lives. And so what that tells you is there's an enormous number of people in Calgary who are on the edge of homelessness. They're still renting, they're they're still homed, but any small shock and they're out in the street. And so the problem is much, much bigger than simply counting the number of people staying in a homeless shelter.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because, and in, in, when you look, for example, at the the number of people who spend the night in a shelter, it, it makes it seem as though you know the homelessness problem is is. Twice as as big in Calgary as it is in Edmonton. You've got almost 1,400 people a night in shelters in Calgary, just under 700 in Edmonton. But when you yeah. look at the number of individuals who, as you say, are considered provisionally accommodated, the numbers you know between Calgary and Edmonton are are much closer. They're much more comparable. So, what what does that tell us? Well, it's telling
1: you that. The issue of homelessness is not um, something that's universal, and, and by that I mean the problem is different in Calgary than it is in Edmonton, and it's different, again, in Toronto, and it's different, once again, in Vancouver. So the the local conditions go a long way to determining how many people are experiencing homelessness and how they choose... Well. Well, how they experience that homelessness—whether they sleep in the street, or in a shelter, or with a friend or family member—so, and, and that what that tells me, and I think this is really important, is that the solutions to homelessness are not just responsibilities or up to choices made by the federal government or by the or by the province. It's also based on decisions made at the local level by municipal governments and by First Nations governments.
2: I mean, it also suggests then that if we have different kinds of homelessness, that they require different kinds of solutions, though, don't they?
1: They, they do indeed. Uh, and, and again, we we need to understand very, we need to be very clear that when we think about how big the size of the problem of homelessness is, you just don't look at report like I just put out and say okay well in Calgary there are 1400 people in an emergency shelter every night so our problem is 1400 people it's not because again the people staying in the shelter one night will not be the same people who stay the next night who will not be the same people again who stay the next night so the problem is not in the shelters but the problem is in the community where people are not able to find housing that they can afford and to hang on to. And and the problem is bigger in Calgary than it is in Edmonton. And so really, we've got to figure out what it is about our city, about the size of rents, about the availability of employment, all sorts of considerations. These are the things we need to think about when we try to come up with solutions.
2: Right, because, I mean, you know, shelters are not a solution in and of themselves. I mean, no. you know, the, the fact that someone has a, a place to stay at night is, is obviously something that's necessary. It's almost like a necessary safety net. So even if we look at those who, for whatever reason, are are unsheltered, who are spending you know, the night in the cold on the streets, uh, do we need to, to just look at it in, in the short term of saying, how do we get these people into a safer situation?
1: You certainly need to think hard about we we can't have people sleeping on the street. It's, um, it, it's killing people. It will kill people. It has killed people. Yeah. And so we certainly need to address that. And Calgary has. In some sense, we've got a lot of uh, beds in homeless shelters for that very reason. Um, a city like Victoria, B.C., has relatively few, hardly any, homeless shelter beds because the danger of people sleeping on the street is far less in Victoria than it is in Calgary because of our climate. Uh, So yet you had to address this. Um, But there there are a lot of ways of trying to address this and they're all hard, they're all challenging. So if you say for example I'm not going to allow people to sleep on the street, I demand or require that they go into a shelter you're causing them to go into a place where they are sometimes feeling in danger. Mm -hmm. So shelters are not necessarily pleasant places. A lot of people go in there, they feel, if I'm trying to get off uh, a substance abuse problem I have, shelters may not be the best place to be. Some people feel endangered when they're in shelters, and that's why they would rather sleep in a tent on the street. But again, now they're being put into serious danger. For people who think that they're helping people who are sleeping on the street by providing them with, with tents, you're probably not. You're probably endangering their lives, and we need to come up with better solutions than that.
2: Yeah, it's it's a big issue. This is a fascinating uh, look at you know the true scope of it. More at policyschool.ca. Ron Niebohm, thanks so much for joining us here today. I really appreciate this. You're welcome, Rob. All the best. Uh, That's Ron Kneebone with the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. He is their director of economic and social policy research. So it's interesting we're talking about homelessness and what that means. It can mean a lot of different things. So you got those who, um, you know, as he says, are sort of identified as being at risk of homelessness. Those who have housing, but their ability to pay for that is very precarious. Uh, so they might from time to time, you know, lapse into homelessness and, you know, find a situation again where they have a place to stay. You know, those who are, are maybe technically considered homeless, but they're not staying in shelters, they're not staying on the streets, are able to find other places to stay. And you've got those who spend the night in shelter and those who just spend the night on the street. So you've got all these different groups of people, very different situations, very different needs. So there's not a one-size-fits-all solution here. I want to begin in this hour, though, with the latest on the fascinating, bizarre, and disturbing murders of billionaires Barry and Honey Sherman. We just passed the five-year anniversary of their deaths. It was December of 20—or the fourth anniversary, rather, of their deaths, December of 2017. Now, the two were found uh, dead in their home in a very bizarre manner. Initially, police thought it was a uh, murder-suicide. They then said it was a stage-targeted double murder. Now, Barry Sherman was one of Canada's richest men. He was the founder, was the chairman, the CEO of Apotex, a pharmaceutical company. Uh, the two were very known philanthropists, uh, very involved in, in numerous charities. Uh, and they seemed to have it all. It was certainly turmoil, I think, beneath the surface. In the business world, Barry Sherman was, was known as very feisty, combative, he dealt with issues within his business. There had been issues within the family. And as such, as these murders have remained unsolved for more than four years, all kinds of theories have emerged. Now, just recently, police uh, identified uh, someone they believe is a suspect. Now, when I say identified, they released a video of somebody they think is a suspect, but they have no idea who it is. But there's some new police documents that have come to light that uh, shed some light on what may have happened here, what could have been a motivation for these murders. And also what police know about Barry Sherman, uh, perhaps some of the people he might have wronged, some people who might have some incentive or some motivation uh, to, to get revenge on him. It's, it's quite fascinating what's come to light here. Joining us uh, for the latest is Kevin Donovan, who has followed this story right from the get-go, chief investigative journalist at the Toronto Star and author of the book, The Billionaire Murders, The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman. Kevin, good to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program.
3: Thanks for having me on.
2: Uh, so, yeah, like I say, I mean, I, I, I find this case really quite interesting, and I think a lot of people do, just given all the various aspects of, of this case and uh, what we've learned since then. So tell us a bit more about some of these new police documents that, that you've now had access to.
3: Yeah, and so the process over the last four years has uh, has involved me going to court and trying to get access to the, you could think of it as sort of a partial case file, the uh every time the police try and get a search warrant, or production order, they have to file a bunch of documents in court, a witness statement, things like that. And uh, uh, the, the courts, uh, it's certainly after four years, uh, it's a little bit easier for me to get stuff unsealed. So, so what I've been learning over the last uh, month and a half is that uh, the police, uh, uh, the walking man, the person you referenced there, the, the, the mysterious person who is seen uh, walking around the Sherman's area, suspicious amount of time during the time the murders were committed the police knew about that going back to within a month of of the murders and they didn't tell the public in fact it's only come out because of our uh, arguing for this information to be unsealed so so in the last few weeks i can see the parts of the documents that the police were filing with the police or with the courts way back in 2018 saying here's this guy uh we're trying to find out who he is and it's only now in the last month that the police have asked the public for help and and what the police were hoping to do is to find at some point in the last four years some cell phone transmission that showed this person was in contact with somebody else in the area that's a complete bust that didn't work out so now uh the police are moving to a new phase of the investigation they won't say what that is i think they've got they've zeroed in on several persons of interest none of them are connected they're all people that members of the sherman family or associates or friends have said you should look at person x and person y and person z and that's what the police are doing right now i'm not going to say it's a cold case but to me it's pretty darn close
2: Well, it's interesting. So if, if there is an obvious financial motive here, like we should make it clear there was never any evidence that anything was, was stolen, either stolen from the home or, or bank accounts or other assets that were stolen. So it's not like we can put, point to something and say, you know, whoever killed the Shermans, they did it because they wanted this. So they were trying to get their hands on that.
3: Uh, that's right. And in fact, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because in a document that I was just unsealed a couple of days ago, it's clear that the police did look around the home ask people who knew the home, uh, to see if anything was missing, any jewelry, money, stuff like that. Uh, no, that, that was not the motive. So, so then what is the motive? Why would somebody kill, uh, Barry Sherman for starters? Well, Barry over the years, who's a titan of business, uh, uh I think quite an interesting person, but certainly rubbed some people the wrong way. Maybe he upset somebody, uh, but then why kill, uh, uh kill honey as well? Right. That, that's, the interesting thing and then and so when you when you also think about what happened that night between nine and twelve on Wednesday the thirteenth of, of December uh two thousand and seventeen, between nine and twelve is when the the Shermans were murdered somebody the walking man somebody had to tell the walking man that they were coming home at that time because they're not always home honey might have been home, but you could have been out at a social event Barry always worked late. He comes home early that night, and I don't know why yet. But he did come home earlier than normal. So how did the walking man know? And that's where the police had this theory that maybe somebody was in communication. What I've said to the police is, could have been a two-way radio, cell phone tower dump, which is the way to find out if somebody is using a cell phone in the area. That's not going to work. So, uh, so you know, it continues to be a mystery. Uh, is it financial? I think it probably is. I, I think that's uh, either retribution for something or to gain something. Uh, that's what I think. But uh, you know, like the police, I'm, I'm still looking for answers.
2: Well, and so part of your story today, and, and this was in these police documents. And, and so I think when people hear this, it might seem like, well, there's your answer. Here's what happened here. But I don't know. You can elaborate. But apparently Barry Sherman owed someone a billion dollars and was not going to pay.
3: Yeah, so that comes from uh, uh, Brad, who is uh, married to one of uh, Barry and Honey's daughters, Alexandra. And and what Brad says to the police quite quickly is that uh, yeah, my father-in-law Barry Sherman uh, was saying he owed a billion dollars, and it's not just a one person. I think it's I, I think what he's referring to are some pharmaceutical debts. Barry would okay. uh, take some risks, and he would uh, you know. Uh, stockpile a drug, make a drug, stockpile it in the hopes that he would would break the patent. And sometimes it worked, and sometimes it didn't. And I, I had reported previously that he he owed five hundred eighty million, but I didn't know about the billion. So there's there Brad who was involved in the family business. When I say the family business, I don't mean the uh, Apotex business. Brad worked at the family holding company called SureFam. He said something I've not seen it from anybody else, uh, and he was fairly close to to Barry's finances, he talks about a billion, and I'm assuming it's this 580 that I've already reported, and then something else. So you're right, it may be to some other individual, and that Barry was saying he's not going to pay it. So, uh, yeah, and I do know from the documents that police have been pursuing a financial motive. I just don't know what it is. And remember, it could be because somebody wants to uh, take retribution for not being paid, it could also be somebody wanting to gain something from from murdering both of them.
2: There's another aspect to the story. And I think it was honey's sister who thought that the the murders might have had some kind of religious motivation, a, a very different kind of aspect then. what What do these police documents have to say about that theory?
3: Yes, that was quite surprising to me. That's one of the the newest portions that I got unsealed that. Is uh, Mary Shekman, who was Honey's best friend and sister, saying uh, right from the get-go that that Honey was involved in uh, trying to uh, stop, uh, in her, in Mary's words, Muslim extremists, and uh, was and that Barry was somehow funding this. They were they were helping a group that was trying to stop uh, money from going to ex- extremists, uh, perhaps terrorists, and so she puts that forward as as a motive. I can't see anything that shows that the police took that seriously. Uh, there, there's nothing. The Shermans were, were Jewish, obviously, uh, and there was nothing in that I've heard of in the crime scene that would show that it was religiously motivated. But, but if you put yourself in the shoes of the, of the Toronto Police Homicide Squad, and, and they, you know, didn't do a great job at the start but once they get into this case they've got a lot of people coming forward saying check out this check out this and i think they're still checking out some of these uh and and uh, with with no success and and i i would like the police to be a bit more honest about this to say you know we're, we're nowhere in this case but they're not willing to say that they say they're still investigating yeah.
2: Well, as part of the challenge, I mean, you know, these notes are telling us kind of what police were hearing or thinking, in, you know, 2018 say it doesn't necessarily tell us what they're thinking right now or where they're at right now, does it?
3: Uh, well, no, it doesn't, except that through the process of getting them unsealed, I have the opportunity to ask questions of the police officer, uh, the main police officer on the case. And so so I know that, that currently, uh, since last summer, uh, their hope of getting any electronic information from the from the phone companies or the cell phone towers that would help them that those are being dashed they just they're not going to get anything from that they've also looked at the uh, cell phone and telephone records of uh, about 300 people looking to see if there's anything suspicious they've looked at all the finance uh, they've not found anything suspicious and so they're left with this person who uh, if you you're listeners have seen the video, it's a person walking in the neighborhood uh, for uh, probably about an hour and the person comes close to the Sherman home. Then there's no video coverage around there and then the person leaves the same way. And so they're left with thinking, well, this is the person. So what I, and I don't have an answer to this, but I've been asking the police, well, did you check Toronto International Airport, Pearson Airport, to see if a person looking like that at 11:30 at night, was boarding boarding a flight, and I I'm not entirely sure that they did things like that, um, but that's why I'm going through this process because there really is is no other way for the public to have confidence in a police force except for the media to go through this process to see how they did their job, and I'll tell you that that some people might think oh it's it's wrong that, that the star is is doing this, but a very senior Toronto police officer said to me uh, uh, quite recently, uh, keep lighting a fire under us. Uh, quote, we, we need this. So uh, yeah. I'm continuing on, and hopefully there'll be more revelations in the near future. Well, yeah,
2: I, I think it's important you know, for, the, for those reasons. But I mean, at the same time, in fairness, it's, it's a, a difficult case. Like there's, you know, the, the, the kind of forensic evidence you might rely on to solve a murder. I mean... There's there's none of that here. It doesn't seem like, and so even if they identify this person on the video, it still seems like this case is going to come down to somebody who knows something, sharing that information.
3: Yes, yes. So that that's that's what what they need, and and I'm assuming that the police have some people on, let's say, the inside who are passing on information. Uh, I don't know about that, um, but I, I do know that. Um, that they're have, they in the process of another production order for something. They're trying to get some more information. They tried two international orders, uh, and so far nothing has come from those. That means they've gone to another country in the world and gotten permission to do basically a um, a search warrant there. And I know from the first one, they got nothing. The second one, they're still waiting for those results. Uh, I, I think another criticism I would have is that they have you know, a young officer working on this full-time, but the Detective Consul Yim is not going out and interviewing people. He's, he's, he's preparing search warrant requests and production order requests. And by the way, production orders are for electronic information, it's like a search mm-hmm. warrant. Uh, he's, he's doing that. I think maybe it's time to bring a few more people into this and, and say let's have more of a full-court press on this because um, it's getting to the point now after four years where, where a lot of people are saying this is just not going to be solved.
2: Well, the latest on all of this, uh, thestar.com, and uh, we mentioned the book, The Billionaire Murders. Kevin, appreciate you making some time for us here today. Thanks for this.
3: Thanks for having me on.
2: All the best. Kevin Donovan, chief investigator journalist at the Toronto Star, thestar.com, his book, The Billionaire Murders, the Mysterious Deaths of Barry Honey Sherman. Uh, and look, I mean, you know, their, their lives aren't more valuable than other lives that have been taken. It's obviously a very high profile crime, you know, given their status. Uh, Barry uh, Sherman, one of the, the richest men in Canada. But if there was a bigger motivation here. Right. I mean, and, and in some ways that can elevate the crime. Like, how big was this? What was this all about? So it, it so is, it is bizarre and fascinating. Why were these two targeted? Why was Barry's wife targeted? Why were they killed at home in this manner? Why were their bodies found? The bodies were found seated. Whoever killed the two seated them next to the swimming pool in their basement. They had belts looped around their necks. That's how the bodies were found. Why?